may not be able to shake hands, but you can clap and praise God, right? Yeah, that's worthy doing that. I had um, some fun Friday. I went kayaking on the Osabo River, and it was a mask-free environment, I'm telling you. It's the kind of thing we're all longing for. We look forward to that time when the, the masks are removed. I'm just reminded while we're singing that song that COVID-19 is nothing in the eyes of our God, right? It's just, it's, just, it's just a blip on the radar. It'll be gone, and we'll be back to mask-free again. But for now, uh, we understand what we're up against. So I'm going to ask you, if you would, go to Luke 14. If you're new to New Hope, we've been working through the parables for quite a number of months now, the parables of Jesus. And in Luke, um, Luke records quite a few of the parables. In Luke 14, we were there last week, and we're back there again this week. So I'm going to ask you to go there with me, if you would. Um, before we get into that, I would love to pray with you. And before we pray, I just want to pull this to your attention. If you look up here, the guys on the camera are focusing in on it. And you can probably see it up on the screen. But it's a little bumper sticker. And this little sticker you can pick up today. They're free. They're in the back of the auditorium. And it's an American flag. But in place of the stars, they use the stars to actually write the word pray. And so I want to impel and compel you to Pray for our nation. Pick these up. Put them on your vehicle if you need to. Put them on your two vehicles if you have two of them or give them out to a friend. If any time we need to be praying for our nation, it's now, right? All right? So let's be praying for our nation. There's a lot going on, not just the elections, but the unrest, um, the disquietness of people's heart. And if we could do anything to remind people to pray more, that'd be a good thing, right? So let's be praying. God says, Pray, turn, turn your hearts towards me and pray, and I'll, I'll be at work. So we want to use these stickers to remind people to do that. Don't hesitate to pick those up today. Well, before we get into the study, would you join me in prayer? We'll ask God to be our teacher this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every single soul that's in this auditorium and that's watching from home or from a campsite or probably from a car in some cases. Lord God, that you would use this time with us together as your Holy Spirit broods over this setting to teach us. We're told that your word was written by holy men as the Spirit moved them, and the same Spirit is the one who teaches us now, God. So we ask that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you teach us, enlighten our minds, especially as this applies to our lives specifically as we look at the reality that you do reign forever and nothing will change that. There's nothing that man can bring against us that we should fear. And that includes viruses, Father. We're, we're willing to proclaim that reality. So we thank you for this time that we can look at your word, that we can exult in who you are, as especially as we're reminded of the eternal banquet waiting for us. And so we ask that you would focus our attention on that right now through what Luke has written. I, I pray for that for every single soul who's part of this study. In Jesus' name, amen. This particular parable will resonate with you a, a little more deeply if you were able to be part of what was going on last week in the study. So if you weren't, I'm going to encourage you this week to go back, go online, go to the website, go to YouTube, um, any of the places that we post, Facebook messages. You'll be able to find this and you'll be caught up and it'll make a lot more sense to you as you work through it. Not that this morning won't. It's just that you'll go deeper into it. Last week, we were looking at this parable that Jesus was invited to a dinner. He's the guest in the home of a Pharisee. 
And the Pharisee made him an honored guest, but what they were doing is they were setting him up. They brought a man in who had edema. The Bible calls it dropsy. And edema is where the body fills up with fluids. And there, there was obviously something going on in this man's body. There was some organ failure of some type, kidney, liver, heart, we don't know. But Jesus healed him. But in that setting, they were trying to trap Jesus because it was a Sabbath. It was a day in which there was not supposed to be work done. Well, Jesus uses that setting in order to remind the Pharisees that it's only the humble of heart that are actually going to eat in God's eternal banquet table. He, he turns directly to them and begins speaking to them individually. Now, the setting we step into this morning is still the same Sabbath meal. He's still at the same dinner table. And the elite of the elite of society are present. In the first century, it's improper for those who are of one class of society to invite the poor, the lame, the blind to their banquets because it's a system of reciprocity in which people scratch your back, you scratch theirs, they'll scratch yours, and they, they did things for each other. So if you invited someone to a banquet, there was an expectation they would host a banquet and invite you back. So they never invited the poor, the lame, the blind because they couldn't give them a banquet in turn. But at the very end of verse 14, Jesus said, well, this is exactly the people you're supposed to be inviting, not to the exclusion of your friends, but you should be including them as well, because they cannot pay you back. And that would represent the humbleness of your heart. Well, in our very competitive world here in 2020, and that would be true in the first century, we constantly have this mindset. Human nature would say, well, what am I going to get out of it? How am I going to get paid back? What am I going to receive as a result of going out of my way to do that? What Jesus was reminding them, if your heart is right, God's going to take care of the rewarding. And so he concludes verse 14 by saying the truly humble, those who are in right relationship with God, they're going to be rewarded at the resurrection of the righteous. And, and the point Jesus has been driving at, this pride issue, that's going to shut you out of the kingdom because pride ultimately says, I'm good enough. I got this. I can do this on my own. But Jesus says, no, that, that very thing is going to keep you out. It's humility of your heart saying, I can't do this on my own. So he, he turns to the Pharisees and he says, if you just humble yourselves, you could be at the resurrection of the righteous. And then he speaks in verse 13 and 14. You can see this on the screen before we step into the parable. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, when Jesus mentions the resurrection of the righteous, somebody at the table, one of the Pharisees who's sitting there, gets really excited because he thinks this is speaking of him. This is the way the Pharisees see themselves. So verse 15, when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And it's as if he's picking up his cup of wine and he's toasting himself saying, we're blessed, we're the ones that are gonna be there. And everybody around the table says, hear, hear! Oh, ho, ho, we're the ones. Because that's the way they see themselves. They see themselves as already righteous. We've got this, we've, we've nailed this. So it's as, as if he's toasting himself. When he uses the phrase to eat bread, that's a metaphor. And the metaphor is speaking of to, to eat a banquet, 
not just bread itself, but to eat a meal. And when you connect it with the thought of the resurrection, he's speaking of the great eternal banquet, the one that God's preparing for us. And there's echoes of that biblical truth throughout the Bible. Especially if you're new to the Bible, I want you to see this, but from the Old Testament all the way into the New Testament, from Isaiah to Revelation, there's a picture painted of what God's going to provide in eternity. Let me remind you of this. From Isaiah 25, verse 6, it says this, "'The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine.'" And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all the nations. He will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. It's a beautiful image. We'll come back to that just shortly. That same imagery is carried over into the New Testament. The writers of the New Testament picked up on that same thing, and they began writing about the marriage supper of the Lamb, and John records an imagery of that for us from the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible. Revelation 19 says this, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm here this morning to tell you that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're already in relationship with God through Jesus, you will be at that great eternal banquet. Amen? That's a a great promise of Scripture. We'll sit across the table from each other. We'll we'll enjoy each other's company. Even if you don't like me, you're stuck with me for eternity, right? We're going to be there. So seated at that table will be all those who are enjoying the new heaven and the new earth without any concern for health issues, because your body will be completely made new. Who's up for that? Take that. Young people would even take that. And, And all the burdens of your earthly life completely gone, all the busted relationships repaired, the broken bank accounts, no concern. All those issues wiped away when we sit at that banquet table laughing together with no mask on. Can you imagine? It's hard to think back to January and February. But there'll be laughter and you won't have to be six feet apart. You can sit right next to someone. I asked the staff this week in staff meeting, we, we have staff meetings on Wednesdays and we're together, and I said, what pops in your mind when you hear that? What's the image? And I asked them to share one-word descriptions, and here's some of the words that they shared with me. I wrote down, um, someone said abundance, someone else said blessing, closeness, a special event, joy, lightheartedness. Everything is all right. Honor. Or what about this one? Humble. Humble that we would be able to be in that environment. The reality is if you're a follower of Jesus, you will be in that environment. And for these who are in the first century, when they think of a banquet, they're thinking of the highest, most joyful celebration they knew anything about. That's why it became an analogy for the heavenly celebration, which God says, by the way, it's greater than you can imagine. It it doesn't even enter into your mind all the things that God has in store for you. All the imagery falls short 
This, this banquet they're speaking of here is the pinnacle. And for them living in the first century, the banquet was a pinnacle of social life in a monotonous world because they don't live life like we live. They, they're scratching out an existence every single day. This is an agrarian society. You wake up in the morning wondering how you're going to feed your family. How are you going to get together enough food? And you wake up the next day thinking the exact same thing. The, the thought of riding your donkey up to a drive-up window and having somebody push a bag of food out to you, it's unimaginable. That's not their world. So to be invited to a banquet, to have a feast prepared for you, and be invited by a prominent person, well, that's likely the highlight of your life. So when Jesus begins speaking of the resurrection and they're all sitting at this table at the Pharisee's house and they're gathered together for a meal, somebody breaks out and says, isn't it going to be wonderful? When we're all together at the resurrection of the righteous, he said that it's because people pictured the eternal kingdom as this great feast where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would be and the prophets and they'd be there as the honored guest. And the Pharisees at the table have no doubt whatsoever they're going to be there. And so Jesus needs to challenge that thinking. And he breaks out this parable because he's willing to say the hard things. We talked about this last week. Because Jesus is invested. He's invested in people. There's, there's love from God towards people. And so he's willing to say the hard things. He doesn't want people to be deluded into false hope. So he breaks out this parable, and it starts in verse 16. But he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. So this group at the table, they understand, and they're tracking with this immediately. They're lured with fascination into this story because everybody looks for themselves in a story. Whenever you hear a story today even, you try and put yourself into the story. Naturally, they're going to try and find themselves in the story, and they can do this really easily. They can envision themselves being invited to this banquet. It's a huge banquet. And they can identify with this really important man who's giving a dinner because he's invited many. It must be a huge event. Well, it is because Jesus used the word megos. Look in your notes and look on the screen, and you see it's the first Greek word that I brought out this morning. And that particular word, big, when you see that in the New Testament, or you see the word great, it's the word megos, but it's not enough just to pronounce it. It's, a, it's more to feel it, because in their world, there is a feeling behind the words that are used. So it's not just megos, it's megos, because it's big. It's guttural. There's nothing larger than the word megos in their world. So high, large, mighty, the size alone of it demonstrates this is an event that's not to be missed. It reminds us of the story told in Matthew 22, the great wedding feast that's described. This is a different setting here. The banquets of this era, they could last for a long time, many, many days. And when the invitations were sent out, they were sent out in a really personal way. Sometimes they were announced by someone knocking at your door and extending the verbal invitation of who the great person was asking you to come, and sometimes in handwritten notes. The very personal way of approaching people. This is an age when time was fairly elastic, and the banquets could take a really long time to prepare, not just to carry out, but to get ready for. It's a world without clocks, and so the world moves at a different pace. 
And when they begin preparing, it takes a long time to gather the livestock and to gather the vegetables and to gather the fruits that they're going to make the desserts out of. And preparation would go on for days in advance. No one would know the exact date. So, meaning this, the specific time is not included in the first invitation. When you get the first invite, you're just told that you're an honored guest. But you don't know what day it's going to happen on. And you don't know the hour that it's going to happen on. So that meant there's always two invitations. You think it's hard enough to get one invitation out if you're hosting a wedding today. You have to follow it up with a second invitation. The first invitation says you're an honored guest. The second invitation was announcing that the preparation was complete. So you find verse 17. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. See the double invitation in the midst of verse 17. He invites the guest. He tells them about the event, but he doesn't tell them the exact hour. Now, part of the preparation also required a count. You had to know how many people actually accepted the invitations so that the staff could be gathering and they would gather for a long time in advance and they'd have to put the dinner settings out. They had to know how many people to plan on. It's like an ancient form of RSVP. And once that number is determined, they knew how much to gather and how much to cook. But in the meantime, the guests who'd been invited, they also had time to prepare. And they would use that time to begin to investigate. They want to know who's going to be at that banquet. They want to know who else is going to be included there. And so, in other words, this group of people have already accepted the invitation to attend. The host expects them to be there. But the consequence of taking time to prepare is that guests would investigate. And they want to see who's going to be there. And they would evaluate the social correctness of whether or not they want to be culturally affiliated with those people. Are those people I want to sit with? Are those people I want to be seen with? Do I want to attend that particular banquet? Well, obviously, the gossip line in that particular city has found something amiss. Something is disagreeable about this banquet. And instead of presenting themselves when the hour arrives, they begin coming up with lame excuses, and they try and cancel so chapter 14, verse 18, but they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I've bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Now, you know, purchasing property is a complex process. I bought land before. I'm sure many of you have bought land before. When we bought this land a few years ago for this facility, it was a complicated process we went through. And it's not something that happens overnight. You don't just suddenly decide one day to wake up and buy some land, you don't make that kind of financial decision without really having assessed the value. So besides that, where's the land going to go? You're going to turn down a banquet in order to go look at dirt? And, and since banquets are held at the end of the day, there's very little light left to go inspect that piece of land. That's absurd. So anyone who's listening to this parable that Jesus is telling who's sitting at the table among the Pharisees is thinking, who would do that? Uh, it's plain that the guests don't want to come in Jesus' story. N the next verse, verse 19, another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. 
Now, a yoke is two oxen, right? So he's got five yoke of oxen. He's got 10 oxen. So this is someone who's pretty wealthy. He's got a lot of animals he's just purchased. He wants to take them out for a test drive. I'm going to go for a spin around the back property. Now, five yoke of oxen are needed for a large estate, usually 100 acres or more. The average person living in that era could only afford five or six acres to support their family with, if they could even afford that. A hundred acres or more, this is somebody who's very wealthy, he's got a lot of means, and he's farming well over a hundred acres. That means he's got hired hands. But yeah, he personally thinks he needs to be there. Now, who would purchase ten yoke, ten oxen, a five yoke of oxen, without first inspecting them? Well, in our world, who's going to buy a used car without first taking it for a test drive? You don't do that. This is a lame excuse. I'm going to go try them out. Well, this sounds like a preoccupation with a new toy. I've got my new John Deere tractor. I want to go take it for a ride. Okay. This is another lame excuse. It's ridiculous. And then this third one, verse 20. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. It's getting a little closer to reality, right? Okay. I noticed in the 9 o'clock service, it was only the men that laughed at that one. This is a little closer to reality because it's a reflection of Deuteronomy 24. Let me put this up for you on the screen. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 5, read this with me. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. And some interpreted that so far as to mean that a groom would not even go to work for a year, that he would stay with his bride for the first year. And it may have implied that, but it never meant no social life. It never meant no banquets. And marriage is not an overnight decision. This isn't Vegas, right? Weddings require preparation. Weddings require decision. So this man knew well in advance he's taking a wife. But his thinking is, well, back when you first invited me, I was single. And I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted. But now that I'm married, my wife says she doesn't have a thing to wear and we're not going. Okay, another lame excuse. All three of them boil down to this. The host has been snubbed. The host is being dishonored. He's got guests who are preoccupied. And they're preoccupied with what Jesus is identifying as possessions and relationships. They're preoccupied with family and with money. God's invitation is constantly snubbed by people thinking they have more important issues. I got something else I need to do. So Jesus is showing us and he's showing them it's really easy to let finances and family get in the way of kingdom things to the degree that it can even cause you to miss out on God's great eternal banquet. Now to the ruling elite who are sitting at the dinner table with Jesus that day, the Pharisees and the scribes who are around the table, they're thinking, this is crazy. Who would turn down a massive banquet like that? How rude. This is absolutely unacceptable. Especially because in some ancient traditions, when a king extended an invitation to a banquet, if another king turned that down, that was considered an act of war. That's a person saying, I don't want relationship with you. 
I want nothing to do with you. And that explains why we come into verse 21. And the slave came back and reported to this, this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry. The head of the household becomes angry because these are insults. This is a rejection of a really gracious offer. And most would say, that's justified. That's a just anger. He gets the right to respond that way. The effort that this host has gone to to invite these individuals is enormously expensive. It is amazingly generous, and it's gracious, and it's kind, and it's being returned with nothing but disdain. We rarely think of God responding with anger to those who reject His invitation. This is clearly what the Bible's portraying here. There's a failure on the part of people to respond to God's grace, His invitation. So the master of the house is ticked, but he's clearly determined that nothing is going to stop his banquet. It's going to happen at the set time, so he redirects the invitation to another group of people because he wants to see this gigantic, this megas banquet table filled. Let's go to the next verse, verse 21, part B. Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and lame. The host doesn't want everything to go to waste, right? He's, he spent all this money. He doesn't want it to go to waste. He says, let's go out. Let's gather the outcast of the community. Let's bring those in. Now, who would be found in the streets and the lanes? Well, the next two words in your notes, the next two Greek words are going to come up for you. When you begin thinking of where you live in a metropolitan area, when you think of the city, you know there's typically depressed parts of a city in any city in the nation. There's some that are more economically prosperous. There's some that are more financially depressed. When he uses these words, this first word, platus, he's talking about a spread out street. That'd be like Saginaw Highway here. Well, who travels down Saginaw Highway? That, that's a great variety of people. It's a lot of different people who will go up and down that highway today. That's the first word he uses, a great variety. But the next one is rume. And that's more like in your neighborhood. That's an alley. That's a small suburb street. Well, in the first century, the people that dwelt in the alleys, those are those who didn't have prestigious homes. That was where the prostitutes hung out. That was where the downcast were at. That's a side lane. So he's saying, go out and find the people who are destitute. Go out and find the people who are broken and hungry. Go find those who know they don't belong at the banquet table. Find the riffraff, find the beggars, find the tax collectors, find the untouchables, find the prostitutes, find the sinners, those who are spiritually aware of their utter unworthiness. Do you know anybody like that in your world? Do you do life with people like that? Maybe that's you feeling that this morning. If you're new to church, maybe you feel that way that you're not worthy, that maybe you've got too much going on in your life that you did wrong in the past and you don't measure up, God could never like you. It's very people that he's saying, go out and find them. That's who he's calling to this great banquet. These are the same spiritual underdogs Jesus had just told the hosts to invite in verse 13. Go out and find the lame, the beggars, the blind. Bring them in. 
Why? Well, this poor group, they can't afford oxen. The blind, they're not going to go out and evaluate real estate. And the lame, they were rarely ever given in marriage. So this crowd's going to be hungry. These are people who are really ravenous, and they're lonely. They're all too happy to be invited to a banquet. Now, on their part, the Pharisees and the scribes, these are the last people they'd want to associate with. Not only to not invite them to a banquet, but to even come in contact with them. You talk about social distancing, they're going to keep themselves apart. So we go to verse 22, and the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. Can I remind you this morning that God's banquet hall is a very, very big place, right? He's got a lot of room there. It's so big that all the seats at the table apparently in this story are not filled because this is going to be a very, very big dinner. So the servant says to the host, there's still more room. There's still more seats. We've added the lowly. We've added the destitute. We've added the hungry. We've brought in the thirsty. Verse 23, and the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. It's the last Greek word in your notes this morning, that word compel, anagadzo. And it doesn't mean to drag someone in by force. To compel means to constrain them in, in the sense that what's going on is really important and you need to be part of this. Compelling is to pers persuade someone. Why would they need to be persuaded? to overcome their shyness. Remember, this is the system of reciprocity that people live in. I do for you, you do for me. So they're likely going to be very shy to go to a banquet. I can't possibly return that banquet. I can't put on a banquet for that great host. That's right, you can't. You can't pay God back. Bring the shy and you're going to have to compel them. There's nothing they have to do to earn it even though they've got these feelings of unworthiness, because these people would normally not be found at the dinner parties. So compel means they must be led in. They must be brought in. Someone's going to have to take that responsibility because they're going to feel like they can't reciprocate the invitation. These are individuals who've never set foot in a palace. We might say today they come from the other side of the tracks. This isn't a life that they're used to. And did you notice that where the upper class require two invitations, the lower class, they require just an ask. I'll be there. I don't need a second invitation. That, that's part of why 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that God uses the low things of this world to shame the wise. Let me show you that on the screen if you've not seen that before. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame that which are strong. God's chosen the humble nobodies. I'm proud to say I'm a humble nobody this morning, but we're hesitant to even say that we're humble. We don't want to be patting ourselves on the back for being humble. That'd be kind of self-serving, wouldn't it? So we don't go there, but that's who God has chosen. It's very possible that you feel that way this morning, that you feel like a nobody. I promise to Jesus, you're a somebody. 
And that somebody that you are, he's done something for you if you receive his invitation. By his doing, you've been made the redeemed of the Lord, and therefore you're going to have a seat at the banquet table. That's how 1 Corinthians finishes. Look at this in verse 30. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All those things true of a believer in Christ. Let's go back and just finish the story. We're coming into the last verse now. Verse 23, it said, go to the highways and along the hedges. What's that? That's him telling them to get outside of Judaism. Get outside of the city of Jerusalem. Go out to where the Gentiles are. Go beyond the walls of the city. Get to the place where those who are not even invited in are at. Those are people who are outside on the highway. Those are highway people out in the bush and out in the thickets, out in the caves. What he's really driving at here is the Great Commission. Matthew 28, go into all the world, preach the gospel, go first to Judea and Jerusalem, and then go to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what he's really describing here. So we're talking about the Great Commission, and, and then it ends in the most abrupt way. Watch verse 24. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Have you noticed that up until now that Jesus has been communicating everything in the third person? He's telling the parable removed from the parable and just sharing a story. There was a man who threw a big party. So he's telling it in the third person. But now everything shifts when he comes to verse 24. He moves to the first person and the second person meaning this is to you, to the group that he's speaking of. This is no longer the story. This is no longer the parable. He's moved into application. And he looks at the eyes of the Pharisees around the table, and he says, for I tell you, I'm speaking directly to you, and he's pointing to his audience. So God the Son is looking in the eyes of the Pharisees. He says, you need to know something. You need to understand this is personal. Just break down verse 24 with me. Look closely at the phraseology. For I, personal, tell you, shall taste of my dinner. God's amazing invitation has been extended throughout time to the people of Israel. We looked at the 10-foot view. We're down low, and now we're zooming out to the 30,000-foot view, and we appreciate what he's describing here. He extended the invitation already to the people of Israel, to the nation, and he did that through the prophets. But when the religious, quote-unquote, people, the religious of the religious refuse the invitation, he turns and he extends the invitation to the outside, to the Gentiles, if you're new to church, the word Gentile is not a derogatory term. It's just somebody who wasn't born Jewish. Biologically, according to the Bible, you're either born Jewish or you're born Gentile. It's not derogatory. It's just saying two different groups of people. Well, God's invitation has been extended to one group, and they refused it. See, now you begin to see that Jesus has clearly been speaking of the eternal banquet it's the end of the parable, and now he shows this has been all about the resurrection banquet of the king. So that means that word none in verse 24, if you have your Bible open this morning, 
maybe at home, you've got your Bible open, just circle the word none. N-O-N-E. It takes on much more dramatic meaning when you understand that. It stresses the seriousness of rejecting God's invitation. He's saying, these guys have squandered their opportunity. Jesus is pressing the issue that God's really gracious, but many falter on that issue. And so the bottom line of the story is to to be excluded from the banquet means to not be in the kingdom of God. Let me just review for you quickly what you're hearing. Just put the pieces together, what you've looked at in these last 20 minutes. You have a great host, and this host is giving a great banquet. And he's invited everyone. He's invited many through the prophets and through the Old Testament scriptures. And he made the invitation, the first invitation, really clear. Israel was given the first invitation. They were given it through the covenants and the promises of the Bible. And they said, yes. They understood, yes, we want that. Their reaction to the Old Testament revelation is belief. They heard and they understood. God's preparing for something for you. It's privileged for you. And so he invites them into the eternal kingdom. And they believed as God's chosen people that they'd be resurrected. That's the future hope. So God gives the invitation in the Old Testament. And then Jesus shows up in the New Testament. And he brings the second invitation. Okay, the banquet's ready. The dinner table's been set. The kingdom of God is here. But when they hear how they have to receive the second invitation, really, I'm not sure we want to be culturally associated with that. So the messenger arrives and says, it's time But the excuses begin to roll in. And did you notice that two of the excuses have to do with possessions, and one of the excuses has to do with the relationships? And what the master storyteller has just done is he's boiled down all of life to a summation of those two issues, the two things that can keep you out of the kingdom of God, finances and family, relationships. Because we're always evaluating whether or not we want to be associated with something based on what does culture think of me or what about my money, what about my issues? So we have to ask ourselves that question this morning. It finishes in your notes that way. If you printed the notes or you have them in your hands right now, look at those last two items. Does what I own keep me from God? Or are the relationships that I'm in, are those keeping me from God? See, when the offer of attending the great banquet is announced... These individuals represent all of those throughout time who are hearing they've been given the opportunity to receive the invitation, but there's no interest if Jesus is the door to the banquet hall. You mean I have to go through that door? (laughs) That's not a banquet I want to go to. I I just soon not. And so we come up with lame excuses. That's human nature. But the story assures us that the host guarantees the banquet will take place. And it's going to happen at the appointed time. And so he extends the invitation to all those who are on the outside looking in saying, I'll take that. I'd like to be part of that. Thus you have Isaiah 25. That's where I'd love to end with you this morning, where we started at. 
Isaiah wrote of the great banquet that you're going to sit at one day. Let me put that on the screen for you, and we'll wrap up this way. Isaiah 25, the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. And he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. That that means it's guaranteed. So watch how Isaiah ends this. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. It's a cool image. Powerful. I'm here to tell you this morning that unless you personally accept God's invitation, unless you personally say, I want that, and I'm, I'm, I understand I have to come through Jesus. Unless you do that, you won't be there. That's hard truth. It's hard for me to say to you, but I say it because I'm invested in you. The love of Christ compels me to say the hard things. So God says you have to receive the invitation. I'm going to pray with you right now that God would seal that truth in our heart. And if you, if you want to talk about that reality afterwards, if that's never been part of your life, I would love to talk with you after the service. Just come on over and I'll stand over here and we can visit. I hope you to understand that a little bit better, how you can receive what Jesus is offering. But I'm going to invite you to do this right now, all of us. Would you stand with me and let's pray together and we'll close out our service with Michael leading us in a song that speaks to Isaiah 25. Father, I ask for every single person who has heard these words, every person within the sound of my voice, whether or not we're at a campsite or in a parking lot or watching from home or personally part of the service in person here, these truths apply to every one of us. There are many among us who will be seated at the banquet table. And we will laugh together and we will enjoy new bodies and we praise you and thank you for that. But Father, the reality is we know individuals who won't be there if they don't receive this. And so we ask that you would use us to speak into their lives. So Father, I'm asking for application for our lives right now. That we would be those who would be bold enough to go out into the streets. Somebody has to be the messenger. Let us be the ones who are willing to say, Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. We, we pray in your name, Lord Jesus, because you are the one. You are the one who wipes away the tears. You're the one who restores our joy. You can give us back our wasted years. You're the one that we've waited for. And we praise you and thank you for life, eternal life, in your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.